Welcome to Tell Me About Your Mother, a podcast for counselors by counselors, where we explore issues related to our profession, filtering them through our professional and sometimes personal and humorous lens. Each episode, Evan, Eli, and Melissa offer food for thought by bringing their experience and humanity to help you strengthen your practice of psychotherapy. We would love to connect with you at contact us at tellmeaboutyourmother.run. I still think about that time she, that woman in Beaufort was screaming at me. <laughs> I mentioned this last time. Yes. I think this was, this was, it, it, I think either. You really agitate people's de- demons. Like they get very upset with you. There's counter-transference with this woman because it, she reminds me of a middle-aged evil church woman when I was a kid. Like some of those women were so damn mean to me. <laughs> I have a theory where, I've maybe told you this, women with substance use disorder of alcohol in early recovery and treatment, there is certainly counter-transference on my end, but they are evil. Like, worse than any... I've been screamed at as a director more from a middle-aged southern white woman with alcoholism than anyone else. They are definitely like, like a type... And I think that my age and my, you know, all the characteristics of me must bring out some weird shame-evoking stuff for them. But Maybe you, from their children, or I don't know. But you, you see through people's veneer, and they're all about the veneer is what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. So you think that's why people Stop looking fuck at me? me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to drive you away with their aggression because you're seeing their shit. And they have a lot of shame, I'm sure, about being in treatment. And it has to be tough to be not only be in treatment, be disempowered in that way, but then the there's a kid that's the director and, and can see through your bullshit. And, <laughs> has to be really. and they're all judgmental and judgmental thinking, I don't really have an addiction problem. I have an alcohol problem. I'm not like these other people. Mm-hmm. I don't do pills. I don't do heroin. I don't do... I so about uh, pompous energy. Mine's different. Yeah, I remember uh, Carla, she had an office next next door, and she was like, yeah, one of my clients got mad and uh, threw her coffee all over my wall. I was like, what? So I go in there, and there's literally just coffee everywhere. Because she had acknowledged something, even empathically, and the woman just had a tantrum. I think she left like two days later or something. But I was like, wow. She had to go get some more coffee. (laughs) Yeah. So. Are we recording this? Yeah, we're recording. Hey, guys. Oh, when did that family? Oh, okay. Was that before or after I picked my nose? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm self-centered, so I needed to begin the podcast with this. I listened back to the other one, and I realized how often I say the word like. And it was really annoying. So now I'm going to criticize myself if I say like often. Do we need to get like a bicycle horn in? Yeah, you should. <laughs> Every time a, you say like. A foghorn. You could just like. Or gong. A spitball. You have a straw and <laughs> just spitball my face. I did a really good group where 
everybody's a woman, and there's this theme of apologizing for not being good enough. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're like, so we want to be, all of us want to be celebrated, right? So we ended up with this, they came up with this idea to clap once if somebody said, I'm sorry. And they would say sorry and nobody would catch it. And then they would say, I'm sorry, and one person would catch it. And it took a couple of weeks, a couple of groups, before everybody was like, we all say I'm sorry a lot. I'm sorry. Stop saying I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) But it was powerful. What happened as they all clapped? It was like conditioning. (laughs) It was just lab rat material. Was this your idea or a client? Well, I kind of instigated it, but they came up with the clap. The clap. I, you told me that once, and I think I did something similar. I can't remember. Because even that little coffee shop snap, anything could work. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just, we need to pause. Something just happened. Because we do this stuff when we don't even mention it. So I was telling this story in group class that I'm teaching this semester, and I have apologized for stuff in a different way than was manifesting in this group, this process group. But when I say I'm sorry, a couple of them will clap. Just once. (laughs) It's hilarious. What a thing I see of group that's missed from the, I don't like the term facilitator, uh, the group therapist. They struggle to remember the importance of I statements. The facilitators do. Yeah, like the amount of times I'll sit in or I'll go in a group that's been conditioned by someone else or whatever, they're talking about not just you, but like philosophical stuff and what if and happenstance and theoretical. Nothing is actually being talked about. <laughs> and then I come I believe in. You're correct. And then I say, I start to track this stuff, acknowledge it, and they look at me like I'm the biggest asshole. I'm like, what are these other people doing then? Right? Are you talking about like when they pontificate out and just. Yeah, and then I'll empathically yeah. acknowledge it. I'm not like, why don't you talk about yourself? I don't say that. But it's it's not us. They don't consistently get irritated. But they will look at me like I have three heads. Well, you're personalizing it. I statements work. But it's so annoying when people do that. It's not about me. I am very annoyed when people do this behavior, whatever it is. And... It's a spotlight. It's like, no, I want to talk about you people. I want to talk about this stuff just happens. No, let's make it personal. So what is a good strategy to use? What you were doing. Just acknowledge empathically and be curious. Mm -hmm. Dr. Abramsom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do the LPA. (laughs) What do they call it? Interpersonal process? Yeah. That reminds me of, oh, we'll have to do a... A podcast on parallel processing. What are you, what are you going? I'm, I'm helping. Oh, helping me. Oh, you're getting a little footstool? <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. You're so nice. Oh, wow. Well, oh. I want everybody to be comfortable. Thank you. I, can I, can I get you anything? I was like starting to slide down. <laughs> oh, so sorry. It's okay. I need to take somebody shopping for a couch who doesn't have how many, 36 inching. How many clients come in and lie down? Two. Really, it's all. Two currently. Mm-hmm. They take their shoes off. One does. They close their eyes. No. Do you do you like do you Freud them? Are you behind them? I do. I have a little. <laughs> uh, I get the little Hollywood glue and put my little goatee on my cigar. Well, Freud would be behind, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. of 
transference. Okay. To not interrupt the process, I think. Wait, what were we talking about? I don't know. Oh, Word processes and parallel process. I statements and making it personal. Talk about me rather than general. But I think part of the problem with the the model that we see in treatment centers is that the group facilitators have this idea that they know how to live and it's their job to impart that wisdom yep. onto everybody else. Yeah, it's a TED Talk. It's a TED Talk, yeah. Well, if I'm talking and pontificating, I'm the expert. But the true expert in psychotherapy is someone that can evoke that within the client with skill. Or the client himself as being the expert, too. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, oh. like um, thinking about a client and all the work that they're doing, it's really just creating the environment and the scaffolding for them to climb up. Like, it's mm. not like... Yeah, exactly. I am this amazing, skilled person. Although, I guess, indirectly, by not having my hands in so much of it, that makes me skilled, <laughs> which is kind of weird. It's very paradoxical. Because you think, oh, I need to be shaking this and moving it and telling them all these things for them to work, but then that's not very client-centered, is it? Mm -mm. And how much is that ego-driven by me it's educational yeah. it's not therapeutic it's not investigational it's not collaborative it's directive here's the so, solution fix it mm -hmm. so what we got to do is we got to start all these treatment centers not hire people that are well skilled and we'll just sign off on all the documentation and they can just have their whistles in their mouth and their mesh shorts and tell people how to live their lives and a clipboard i think that's really effective <laughs> but that's what's so horrifying that is truly what is so horrifying because if it was effective, then addiction would be cured or mental illness would be cured in, you know, 30 days of that. And then, now we're all out of work. Right? <laughs> no, exactly. If we, if we help people be well, then what are we going to do? Well, that's what I've been thinking is how lethal is the disease of addiction truly? Because when I zoom out and I think about how we treat most diseases, we really miss the mark with substance use. So how do we really know? It, we're, our intervening variable, which is you know, treatment, generally is very poor. And then they have recidivism or overdoses, all that stuff. We're giving them the wrong medicine. Well, I think part of it's a social problem of stigma. We don't consider addiction a disease. Socially. And we treat it as such. Yep. If I go to the hospital for a kidney transplant, I'm going to get a lot of flowers and cards and visits. If I go to treatment for a cocaine addiction, I won't see any flowers. I won't see any get well cards. Very few people are going to come visit me. What is the di difference between me going to a residential facility for a new kidney and me going to a residential facility for a sober life? I see no difference. But society still fails to adequately see addiction as a disease. Well, and if you're Life in the hospital for an overdose, well, family yeah. members probably aren't even going to tell anyone. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm -mm. So, so you're not going to be getting cards and flowers. Get well soon. Because it's a secret. It's a shameful secret. That's like going to, yeah, the people who try to commit suicide, too. Yep. You know, they're not treated very well by the hospital staff, for one thing. Not always, but sometimes. 
I think one of the gifts of COVID is that we are starting to see a shift in attitudes about mental health. And substance use is a mental health issue. I'm trying to cope with my suffering. So I think we are coming around to see this differently. Mm -hmm. Do you disagree? No, no, no. I'm thinking of what is the point of dichotomizing mental health and substance use? You mean like pitting them against each other? No, like, I mean, think of our, even our licensures, right? It's like LCAS, LCMHC. What's the point? Or how did that come about? I think it came about. From the old moral model of addiction yeah. of bad people do drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I think the medical model of addiction, you only see and people only know about it if they're in mutual aid societies or 12-step programs. Right. Most of society is still seeing this as a moral model. That's my belief. No, I think so. Get Jesus and you'll get sober. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're moral against high acute mental health as well. I mean, my, my thing is, oh, where'd, where'd Jerry go? And then you find him in the New York City uh, station. Uh, Subway. Subway. Ten years later, he's just been down there talking to Sandy that doesn't exist. Well, I mean, I think that's, some of those mental health symptoms, though, do look like you are amoral. Like if you become so manic that now you're spending a hundred grand at Nordstrom's to the detriment of your own family finances. I mean, to the outside world, that does look like you just can't make a good moral decision. You can't put your family first. Well, they can't. They can't. No, right. but I so think that people. That part is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, it looks like they're just like, you know, oh, screw the family, screw the dinner on the table, I'm going shopping. Yeah. So I think it is hard to separate and have empathy for behaviors that damage others. Well, if we're even, yeah, as counselors, it's easy to come in and we can have that degree of separation. But if it's our uncle or our father or someone and they're spending all of our money and now we have to eat ramen because he went on a manic a manic spree. We're not going to be like, oh, well, you know, Johnny just really struggles with manic episodes at times, and we just need to get him on the right medications. Yeah. No, we're going to be like, screw you, Dad. You keep eating all of our all of our beans, and you keep dr- spending all this money at Northlake, and now we can't afford decent food. Or trading our EBT cards for cocaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think if we get back to that conversation about how do we train clinicians and group facilitators, it depends on us defining what's the problem. So we're looking at the solution. So what do people need? They need education. So that's how we've been approaching groups. But I think socially and from an educational standpoint, we help counselors in training under identify what are you doing when you go in to facilitate group? What is the problem? What is the solution? Who has the solution? Who's going to implement the solution? Okay, I think we misunderstand the goal. I think so, too. That brought up this idea of authoritarianism and the authority figure. Mm -hmm. A lot of times as group facilitators, they walk in the door and they think, okay, I'm the authority here. You know, you will listen to me. I need to elicit control. I need to elicit control. Now I'm on behavior behavior patrol and I'm going to you know criticize aloud anybody who leaves group or 
you know, appears that they're not paying attention. Because in my experience, whenever I stay out of the way and storming happens and the work seems to suggest a beginning, laymen on the outside of those walls will perceive me as unprofessional and incapable of running a group. Right, because they're see they're they're seeing anger and restlessness and people walking in and out, like because there's there's a fragmentation that's happened. But effective group facilitators, leaders, whatever. Yeah. What was your preferred word? Group, group therapists. Group therapists. Therapist. Yeah. Because facilitate will, apply implies something. You kind of making something happen. Yeah. But a good group therapist is going to label the conflict label the avoidance and not shame and guilt it. It's a coping strategy. I don't know what to do, so I'm going to sit in group and color and doodle. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. We must extinguish it. Right. Right? You can't turn your chair backwards and sit, you know, spraddle-legged and lean on the back with your arms crossed. That's unacceptable. Well, why? Is that a rule or is that a therapeutic philosophy that we could base in empirical data well if we have a group member who consistently colors in group and stays a little bit outside of the circle what theory or what theories could be from that like why would they be outside of the circle coloring what does that inform us of what can we wonder about within well it's that definitely Ruggieri and person centered what do I need as the coloring member of this group I need to be a little I need to be 12 inches back and I need to look at a paper with colors and that could be part of ADHD or anybody on the autism spectrum stimulus okay. overstimulated so I'm going to distract myself a little bit doesn't mean it's pathological it definitely can be avoidance it can sabotage the group process but that's why you have to stay curious and inquire but I think sometimes so many of our clients who go to treatment centers are so treatment savvy they're used to not being asked that and so it's almost taboo to ask you know what is coloring doing for you right now it's almost like what why are you noticing why are you saying this out loud why are you asking me these questions I think a lot of facilitators you know um would just be happy with them behaving. Right. He's This person's being quiet. But behaving in a manner that facil- that suits the facilitator. Right. And not in a manner that is understood by a group therapist. Well, and that goes to Melissa's pointed out before. Treatment centers often have a fixation on the unwell client. So the squeaky wheel, whatever that saying is, we fixate on that. Like the rambunctious person or whatever, but then the person coloring is not getting therapy. They're getting, essentially, probably there's a reenactment happening where I think of um, a family system. Maybe, maybe they're a middle child, or maybe they were always on the outskirts of their family dynamic, or they tried to stay out of conflict because there was domestic abuse or something. Or it could be that they have mild autism, right? We don't know. Or they could be hearing more than anyone else in the room. Oh, yeah. Right? Well, the whitest person in the room can often be the one that takes away the most. That's what I love doing, too, is um, I'll ask things like, what are my silent voices hearing in this group? After, like, 30 minutes, an hour? Mm-hmm. That's a trick to get them engaged, but also 
you get to determine, hey, are these people processing? Generally, they are. And they're the ones that have this innate intuition. They're kind of like snipers. They're invisible. They're on the roof, but their shot is <laughs> spot on. Yeah, and it can really help the group process move forward because if they're silent mostly, generally people like them, right, because they're not that constant confrontation or annoying in the group, whatever. So the group is going to adhere to their their pinpoint accuracy much more effectively too. And this kind of ties into Jungian archetypes. Mm-hmm. We talk about, you know, roles in a group, the chronic talker, the manipulator, you know, the solution, the fixer, the Now we have like the, the peacekeeper. Silent, yeah, the silent watcher. Mm-hmm. When yeah. a client is upset, crying, dysregulated a bit, and another client comes and gives them a tissue, there, there. a level of rage occurs inside <laughs> of me that I have to hide. It's like so, I, one time, this person was um, upset, crying, and they were okay. They weren't going anywhere. This guy, the he didn't speak much. I noticed there's this pinball. Right? This pers- person's crying. He is hes going out of the room. He's coming back in. He's sitting on the chair. He's going to the other room. He's looking around the room, and I'm just observing. Finally, he rushes back in and gives this woman a tissue. So this entire time, her sadness evoked so much restlessness and anxiety and fear in him that he was on a search patrol for a Kleenex. Oh. For like five minutes. I mean, and it was, I'd never seen something so exaggerated. Like, usually someone just passes a tissue and I might acknowledge like, hey, what does that usually do when you pass a tissue? What message does that send? Um, very rarely does the person crying acknowledge that that was a dismissal. But it was so fascinating to process that for him. And it, it, he felt very seen when I acknowledged, just from an observational level, what had just happened. It was like I was looking at him naked. What did he, what did he reveal? I don't remember exactly what he said. I just remember he got super uncomfortable and it was just this vulnerable energy. I don't remember. Mm. That's the hard thing about um, recollecting group therapy is often I don't remember the words. Yeah. It's like this process. Mm -hmm. I just remember that feeling of he felt really vulnerable and, and found out. I wonder if he had to be the rescuer for sure. As a child, the one who comforted mom and kept her regulated in order to be safe. The person crying was a middle-aged woman, too. Yeah. I just never seen something so, like, obvious. Usually you mm-hmm. can kind of have to suggest certain things, but it was... I always found it interesting when clients became rageful towards other clients who took the opportunity to be very personal and reveal very deep-seated pain. How would their rage look? Um, I remember distinctly this lady was screaming, um, you're making this session all about you. You're making it all about you. You know, I've, I think I've heard this story before. And so I, I turned to her and I said, you know, something to the effect of, like, 
what is it him what is him telling his story and revealing his pain bringing up for you and then i think eventually we got to the place where she had to be quiet her whole childhood and could never verbalize a problem uh, she had to suck up the abuse um, just take it as it was and so that's what she was sort of bringing to treatment was she was just going to be quiet and just make her 30 days not say anything keep her head down and this guy was taking the opportunity to use treatment as transformative change and she didn't like that it, it made it was forcing her to think about her own issues and she wasn't there to think about her own issues but it's kind of ironic that she made it all about her by screaming at this guy <laughs> for making it all about him it was very interesting because in mm. the end i was talking about like inadvertently invalidating people um because like she was that's what she was basically doing was invalidating this guy and I, I think in the end I told her something like, is it possible you're both right at this moment? That, you know, he he can, you can use treatment any way you want to, and he can use treatment any way he wants to. There's no, quote, right way or wrong way. Wait, let's call this woman Judy. Judy. So, <laughs> if she, all right, I had a thought. Eli, don't jump. Um, we're in a 10-story building. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I found the secondary clock. Oh, he like Captain he, Hook. Yeah, he likes ticking clocks. <laughs> My grandmother had one when I was a kid, and it was always so quiet and boring in there. I just remember that every time I hear it was like I a bigger a, pendulum kind yeah, of. Yeah, every time clock. I hear a tick, I just remember being like, "I'm gonna be stuck here all day, <laughs> and I'm not gonna be able to play or do anything." It was like, <laughs> just like clocks right back into my you mind. You should have told me about this three years ago. <laughs> oh, no, I was I was being passive. <laughs> but Judy, she's recycling her own abuse. She is. So her parents invalidated her own feelings, probably through intolerance and rage and neglect. So in return, she and had to... And maybe loud yelling that she was modeling. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so she had to recycle that narrative about feelings that was projected onto her, onto herself. Because then it's on her terms. When they do that, it's just the, um, the system's role. So it's not evoking a lot of tension at that moment. Now when she's in group therapy, she's not only reenacting that within herself, but towards other members of the group. Yes. This breaks a rule within my system. This is not how we go about feeling. We're sharing it. Um, therefore, I'm going to seek the same solution my parents sought out at me, at you. Mm -hmm. And we were able to talk a lot about that because, like, her does, her, I asked her, what was your intention for this group? And her intention was just to sit quietly, absorb the quote lesson. They always focus on this idea that there's a lesson. <laughs> they and get so mad. Yes, they do. They do. They and um, because they've and been she was just going to sit there. That's been yes. the model for forty years or longer. And, and but this guy, he he really needed to process how he was treated as a child. It had gotten so, so he got into this place in his addiction where. It was do or die. I mean, either I invest myself in treatment or I will die of the next overdose. And he was appreciative of the severity of his addiction. So he, if there was a quiet in the room or if the, quote, lesson did apply to him, he would seize that opportunity and he always entered the conversation through the lens of he and his girlfriend. 
And that was that was the on-ramp to the deeper level issues. And then that's when this woman would like cross her arms and she'd be like, ah, I've heard this story a thousand times. You know, why do you keep starting there? And, and I, I remember turning to her and I said, I think I just observed out loud, or maybe I inquired, but you needing to be quiet, isn't that what you've done your whole life? Yeah. Is just be quiet. I wonder who she reminded him of. Mm. He did like that turning of the screw kind of thing, like, like, oh, I can see that this agitates her, so I'm going to press the gas on talking about my... My yeah, my dysfunctional you know relationship with the girlfriend. Probably someone in his family, like his mother, she was very invalidating too towards him. Well, client anxiety is signaling to me to avoid whatever we're talking about. Like subconsciously, oh, we're not supposed to go there because they're getting a little dysregulated or tense, or they're. You know, I had a session Monday, and. About halfway through, he's like, "I'm having a panic attack." Right, so he's telling he's telling me, "I don't want to talk about this anymore," which is fine. We didn't. But how do people really generally respond to him saying that? And what does that inform me? Well, I think it informs me that we're beginning to broach like a core realm. I think often especially in the uh, mesh short facilitator dynamic anxiety is bad dysregulation is bad anger is bad because they're not trained to even know how to de-escalate situations themselves no and well themselves too but i if clinical teams were allowed to be clinical teams i think people there'd be a lot more treatment and therapy and actual progress being had but we weren't allowed to be clinical teams. No. We had to follow some very unwritten rules that we neither consented to nor wrote. Or believed but, in. Or believed in. But, <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest one. Hey, that's what I say. You anthropomorphize the dynamic between clinician and treatment corporation. It's generally abusive. It is. It's like the corporation is the abuser. The clinician is the scapegoat. Um even though we're the ones that are actually providing the service. It's silly. It's like me squatting in someone's house and then emotionally and physically abusing them every day and thinking I have every right to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's indignant and angry if they ask you to leave. Yeah, it's like, who are you? It's like, what? I pay for all of this. Like, we're, re we're the ones reimbursing for all of these services. Without us, you guys are nothing. I, that was one of my last and final thoughts from my last job was that why am I having to scrounge for pens and copy paper mm -hmm. when I'm the moneymaker? Yeah, we're the only ones that... <laughs> like, I was then paralleling that to law firms where I used to work, but my previous career as a paralegal. The lawyers were the moneymakers, and they had staff and infrastructure in place to support lawyers mm -hmm. to allow them to do what they do best. Make more money. Make more money. Pontificate. <laughs> actually produce results. And they were given lots of pens and copy And paper. they were given lots of pens and copy paper. They didn't have to literally crawl on their hands and knees under someone's desk while the person's on a conference call to not be seen on the Skype camera <laughs> to get a 
copy paper and then have to army crawl back out. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like I, I remember thinking, wow. I was like, why am I doing this? This is nuts. Oh, because they... They, they, they s- hid the copy paper yeah, box yeah, yeah, yeah. so that we, the clinicians, could not make <laughs> copies. But we're never told we were on a copy paper allowance. But it was just... Therefore, it's not even implied. I guess it's implied, but the whole tripping over dollars to collect dimes. Yes, tripping over dollars to pick up dimes. That's terrifying. So someone in the corporate office is thinking about the coffee copy paper expense. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. Low hanging fruit. I can see it on the budget. I can change it. I can control it. I can ban photocopies. Terrifying. But clinically, they don't know how. The folks that are making these decisions don't know how to make the clinical work a revenue source, which is the only revenue source. It's the but they only don't know how revenue to source. It. They don't know how to define it, quantify it. I can no. control the toys and the salaries and the supplies people need. Yep. I mean, I had to do like a, a collection amongst neighbors and in my own supply just for art supplies. I mean, that's that's insane. Yeah. Well, I think I did pretty good at getting us art supplies. You did. I think you did. I mean, you did. But towards the end, after you left, it was bare bones. <laughs> and that's the other unfortunate part is, as a director, it shouldn't be part of my energy expenditure to convince, you know, quote, leadership that we need art supplies or that we need to hire that group therapist for 50,000 instead of 48,000. I shouldn't have to expend energy doing that. <laughs> right? Like, right. So, so here's, here's a, a funny scenario. We had an internship program. We were gonna use that as a way to figure out how to staff and hire better. The idea being this will be a, a six-month-long interview. They'll be able to be trained within our system, within our philosophy. We'll see how they interact with clients. Um, we'll get a, a way broader interview process that way. This guy was great. He had a lot of conceptual ability. He was able to uh, skillfully uh, conduct group in a way where it wasn't authoritarian, but it was creating cohesion and creating buy-in and all that good stuff. He wanted a job. We were down a group therapist already. He wanted 50000 a year. I'm talking to people in Florida, going back and forth, and I'm a good negotiator, right? He's like, we can't go over 48000 So after a bit, the guy denies the offer. Now we're down a group therapist, and now we, lo- we lose tens of thousands of dollars in a matter of a month because we're running on a skeleton crew. So not only are we missing documentation, more clients are leaving because they're not in a stabilized system. So I was spending an hour and a half arguing about $2,000 in hopes to prevent losses to the company of of 50 or 60,000. So you're arguing about $2,000, meanwhile tens of thousands of dollars are walking out the door. Yeah, or leaking due to a skeleton. Clients with a deadly disease. With the con- yeah. Exactly. But I think so, this is education. 
they're looking at copy paper. Where can we get it the cheapest? How thick is it? How is it bright white or is it just regular white? And, <laughs> you know, it's like they're they're looking at clinicians like a product you buy at Office Depot, hmm. but not understanding the the product. They don't understand the product. That's exactly right because they saw us as plug and play. Like you go out into Indeed and you just get somebody who looks like they have some letters behind their name and you bring them in and, okay, they say they can be a group therapist, but then there's no tryout. There's no vetting to see if they actually have a skill set. I mean, I think about this with hospitals. I mean, if they need a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, they're going to want to make sure that person actually knows how to do the surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, they would ask the high level questions. They would consult with whomever trained them maybe even bring them in and i don't know how they let them Watch try them. out some patients but <laughs> test drive <laughs> i don't know if they don't do that but you know but I mean, i'm sure there's a process in place well but maybe here, they have like tapes like football players here's my here's a good play watch this surgery. maybe they do that would make a lot of sense well here's a thought they have if, observation decks i know during mm-hmm. surgeries at hospitals training if we, hospitals if we parallel um a client addiction treatment to someone getting brain surgery right say that the brain surgeon fucks up and the client dies right what's the who's the onus on the brain brain surgeon the brain anesthesiologist or or the hospital the hospital i mean brain or we're at least going to look but that's a whole other thing right because a lot of doctors do kill people accidentally and (laughs) nothing happens anyway um Whenever it's an addiction treatment, say someone um, is disengaged in group, highly ambivalent, and they leave treatment, relapse, die. What does the treatment center say next to the coffee maker? It's untrained. They brought it on themselves. We didn't fail. They weren't ready. They brought it on themselves. They were resistant. They were egotistical. They were raised with a silver spoon, they'd been to 25 treatment centers, etc. Not one time is there going to be a conversation. And I would start that one and they'd look at me like I was crazy. But it but would, it would not be, be nice to see how many individual sessions did they have. Were those individual sessions with the same therapist? Was there a therapeutic relationship? And in their groups, did they have a different facilitator leader? Or did they have a therapist... And how many different therapists did they go through? And what did their working process look like? How did we intervene at a therapeutic level? None of that Mm -hmm. is what's measured. The only thing that's measured by the company is going to be AMA rate and level Mm -hmm. of chart compliance. Mm -hmm. But that was even frustrating, too, because there was no digging into those charts to see if anything of value was taking place it was just like i'm looking through this line item list individual 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 oh well this is where you went wrong you didn't have a family session (laughs) well they can't interpret the data we're inputting they cannot but it's like why would i have a family session when this client just reveals that both the parents were complicit in her sexual abuse you know it's like you can't you can't do that it's like me going to a surgeon wing and making people do all sorts of shit just because I want to. Right, and you know nothing about neurosurgery. <laughs> it's exactly the same. It is. It's, it was a, it's a very it bad like me go get a lab coat on or, or doctor coat <laughs> and just go down to Navant, walk mm-hmm. in like I own the place. And because you had the surgery. 
Yeah, I'm just I'm like, all right, let's scrub. I only wash my hands for two seconds. We're going to shave three seconds off the scrubbing. We don't need it. And band-aids <laughs> yeah. are just as effective as, as stitches. Sutures. <laughs> yeah. Sutures, yeah. Yeah. Wow, is this podcast episode just going to be us bitching about treatment? <laughs> I was wondering when this would happen. It's, it it, hasn't taken it does work. We've all heard about the stories that work. Mm-hmm. Like, I had someone come back through a center I was working at, but talked about this awesome therapist that had really transformed their lives and given them a you know, fresh start. It was like 10 years ago. I wish I could find that counselor, that therapist, and thank him. I'm like, what was the name? And he gave me a name, and so I asked around. Nobody had ever heard of a therapist. It was a third shift hall monitor in the residential wow. facility wasn't even a clinical staff mm. had changed this guy's life yeah just it was a well personal listening. connection it was a therapeutic yeah. relationship yep but this guy changed his life so if a third shift basically a hall monitor keeping people people from running away and jumping out windows and burning the house down can be that therapeutic why can't somebody with a master's mm-hmm. why can't somebody with a license or two licenses do the same thing Maybe that goes back to our the theme of our first podcast, gatekeeping. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just had to do that when uh, this Facebook group, people send out referrals, and I had a previous employee that was referred to this pretty high acuity case, and I had to send a message on the side and say, hey, the person you referred to has shown no understanding of ethics or ability to... Uh, acknowledge her own counter-transference. Um, it, it was a nightmare. I had to terminate her for these reasons. And they're like, oh, thank you so much for letting us know. There's a couple problems there, right? Why are you referring someone that you don't truly actually know anything about their clinical ability? Then I look anything. then I look into it. She's the CEO of some group practice and probably has financial incentive to build this person's caseload. Oh, who's now a therapist in this puppy mill. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like I sent an email and nothing heard back. But at the very end of the email I said I don't have any um animosity towards this person, but I feel that it's my responsibility as a clinician to provide this information and be a source of gatekeeping for a client that may potentially be re-victimized. Yeah, I think gatekeeping, we look at it too narrowly. There's a backdoor gate to... Ooh, what's the backdoor the, gate? The gatekeeping of who do we allow in. There's another gate where we can move people out. They need to but hire me wanna, for that. We don't want to talk about that gate. <laughs> yeah, because you have to cut somebody's hand mm-hmm. off. And we're counselors. We're supposed to be strength-based. Well, if you only have one strength, you probably should not work in the field. Those are the people who end up before the licensing board, you know, crying and, yeah, having to contemplate whether to hand over their license because they've done something so horrific, lost their objectivity or... What is this about the five-year... I talked to Eli about this. You can have sex with your client after five years. Is that the... That's not... 
I mean, not ethically, but isn't is it legally? Is that the ACA or, or is that? No, I'm, I'm confused because one in Arizona, it's never. Yeah, but I'm like, what I happens after ACA five ethics. years? ACA ethics is five years. Okay, in Arizona, so. it's never. That I thought it was North Carolina effective. was never too, but no. Or is it not even codified? Because I get confused because Arizona had so much actually written down as law, mm-hmm. but North Carolina is a lot more loosey-goosey, vague. I just thought it was funny. I was like, what happens after five years? <laughs> I will no longer abuse you after yeah. five years. <laughs> I, don't, I won't remember our sessions or the power differentials won't exist. None of I that. I will use none of that information against you. You won't be viewing me as an expert or this disproportionate vulnerability dynamic that we experienced for however long we had sessions. None of that will exist after five years. Maybe they saw that they were losing too many counselors, that it commonly happened after five years, and they had to make an adjustment to the rule book. They need That's to... probably unlikely, but funny. That's sad. But we got to have wellness. We have to monitor ourselves yes because there's no rubric there's no assessment of each other how do we know who's well how do we address it it would be nice if clinical treatment organizations or a group practice would actually focus on that not just continuing ed but how are you as a person how well are you how balanced Mm. are you like an EAP for counselors, by counselors kind of thing. Like the wingman program for the mm-hmm. for pilots. aviation mm-hmm. pilots, yeah. That would be very good. Like an annual checkup. Can meet with Evan and he can assess whether I'm like a doodle or not. We have poor assessors though. Well we don't assess now at all. That's true. I'm talking about more in terms of being in a center or Oh. Well, often that goes what I was saying. Oftentimes, the administrative people. But is it an assessment or questionnaire that's eighteen pages long? Yeah, they're not assessing clinical. Questions are not an assessment. It's data. Yeah. What's the so what? What's the meaning? Yeah. Right, but they are wanting to quantify the qualitative so that the business people can lie to themselves thinking they understand the data. Right. <laughs> Hopefully no CEOs are going to listen to this. <laughs> I am trying to get in business with them. <laughs> <laughs> but they got to be curious. They're smelling smoke. They just don't know what to do about it. They're, but, yeah. where's the fire? And it's confidence. Do I have an extinguisher? If I do find this fire, then I'm going to have to definitely do something about it. Mm. And I don't know what. Yep. Well, I mean, you're bringing clinical purity to the table, and I think that's something the industry is has been lacking for a very long time because it just gets obfuscated. The whole process gets obfuscated by insurance demands or the business side of things where they think they can cut corners and you know hire less trained people and get as much money back in the door. I talked to a CEO in Maryland who seems to be doing it right. It's very refreshing to talk to him. And the way that he described the common perception or approach to investors and business people starting treatment centers, 
the way they think of it is they look at what's the state license requirement. And what's the, the minimum? Uh, what's this the is minimum? an outpatient what medical. What can we get away with? And then engineer a program to fit the state regulations. Yes, because that's the only preview they receive. So they start on the wrong foot. I mean, so, that's like like a, a car manufacturer saying, what's the bare minimum car mm-hmm. I could build with the bare minimum safety requirements that the law requires? That wasn't redundant. And then I'm just going to produce a car based on solely on that. Yeah, so who is writing the licensing criteria for treatment centers? Why is it... Why is the criteria for state licensure allowing companies to run on a skeleton crew. It's the only field I've ever heard of where it's just customary to run a center on a skeleton crew. But I would think that there would be like ratios, like staff to client ratios that are required. Like you have at daycare centers, right? You have to have this many teachers for this many students. It's not that way. Well, when people come and uh, look through charts, they're not looking at caseload sizes. They're looking at whether or not the biopsychosocial was completed by Jerry in October. Hmm. I mean... But the census, like a small agency, could have 12 for a month. And then they could have 25 clients for a couple of months. And then they drop to 8. Yep. There's variance in the census. So we... What do we do with these clinicians? Hire them, fire them, just use PRN people? Is that therapeutic? Yeah. No. So you got to hire people and keep them, even if the census drops to half. And so then they get reactionary s- to the loss that they see up front. But this is defining the product, like the copy paper. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep a $50,000 a year therapist on when we get a low census? But see, I think therein lies the problem also. This made me think the business folks are seeing this goes into patient brokering they see the patient as the money maker yeah and that's so evil because well it is their money maker when they do the admission and get uh paid for however long their stay is it's their money maker it is and is it ethical no it's horrifying and then you add on top of that this concept of sales commissions that if the patient stays 40 days, 45 days, 30 days, whatever, yep. you get a 40% commission. So therein lies maybe why I found myself in all these situations as a director when I would have to admin discharge someone or someone literally had fled the property and I refused to chase them. Why I would be hounded by people in that corporate structure that were part of the admissions team. Because they were not getting their commission. So my clinical lens and boundary was taking money from them. Yet, if they zoomed out annually, I was making them hundreds of thousands of dollars more. <laughs> so that's that's part of... Um, but we have ethical training. We have ethical standards where we must follow. These admission sales folks don't. They do not. They do not, and I think that is where, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Evan, but I think that's where you butt heads a lot is because you had an ethical guideline to adhere to. You had to protect your license, and they have nothing to lose. And you understood the clinical value of 
ethical practice. Yes. That this helps the client. It's not just a bunch of rules, but this makes what we do work. Yeah. It's, it's hard to educate people on that. Well, we had three simultaneous groups running, and I started to realize we're not utilizing rosters effectively. We have people shifting from group to group. It's obviously affecting tracking and documenting, but more importantly, we're not mapping appropriately client avoidance. Because if I get in an argument with you in group A, and then I just go scoot out to group C and then tell that group therapist, and they're like, oh, okay. That group C therapist has no idea about the confrontation that you and I just had, and they're not informed about how to process that. Mm -hmm. And so you have a musical chair group where we're reinforcing clients' own avoidance strategies. And so I was like, put a hard line on, hey, you are in group A. They'd come in, be admitted. They had a group assignment. That was their group the whole time. They would have separate group therapists, but they're locked in. You wouldn't believe the amount of clients that would come to my door and they thought I was the most evil person in the world, the most unempathetic person in the world, the most authoritarian regime in the world, because I would talk to them about the importance of remaining in their group and processing the very things that they're disgruntled about, frustrated with, etc. Then I have people that are in, you know, quote, ownership that say, Evan, why do you have to fight on these things? If they want to go in the other group, let them. Because they didn't care. At the end of the day, they could still bill for those six hours. It didn't matter. Exactly. And they don't understand the product. They do they not understand, understand the product. Why? That's relevant. But if I go into a neurosurgeon's office and I walk in, I'm going to be asking questions. I'm going to be writing notes. Do you use sutures or band-aids? I'm going to be <laughs> assessing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to know. I don't know anything about brain surgery, but therein lies the problem with psychology is that people believe that their anecdotal experience is a license or it's comparable. Yes, yes. I think that's a trend in our world, in our profession, this concept of lived experience being mm -hmm. tantamount to education. <laughs> a credential. A credential unto itself. Because a lot of the people running these centers have lived experience as well. And your sobriety is not a credential. No. No, just because you figured out a formula that works for you doesn't mean that formula is going to work for everybody else who struggles with addiction. It also doesn't allow you to know what an open question is <laughs> and why it's important. <laughs> right? And why staying curious is important, yeah. And, and whenever I feel really tense when Karen walks in, it's because she reminds me of my second grade teacher that used to put me in the corner and scream at me, right? We have to be trained in how to wonder about that within ourselves in the moment. Lived experience is not going to provide you that skill. Because it's not a skill. I'm just replaying my experience. I've just got a bag of tricks. We're not using the client's bag of tricks. Their wisdom, their experience, their mm -hmm. expectation. We're not honoring their expert status in that specific client. Nobody knows their hopes, their fears, their insecurities better than that one client. Mm -hmm. And we can't succeed without their resources, without their insight. But we could barrel into this therapy thing and we're missing the expert. We're not engaging them. We're not including them in this treatment team. 
Mm-hmm. And we do that in a macro level as well. I had a class. It, it was, I, I need to figure out who this guy is. I can't remember. A community psychology class. And he would talk about how what's customary in terms of treating a community is the expert comes in and they might build a playground. And then they build it, they invest millions of dollars in this playground thinking that will build community. Then, after they build it, they realize no one goes to this playground. Like, what's going on? Then they interview people and realize that's where a gang hangs out, right down the street, and everyone in that community knew that. And the gang is to the left, but to the right side is a sewage treatment plant. Yes. No one thought to ask. They just thought, it's just imperialism at its finest, right? We're going to come in. We know the the best practices. We understand what to do. Just stay out of the way. Keep your mouth shut. Colonizers. Oh, I like that concept. I never thought about that. That is imperialism. Yeah. So colonizing. It's a whole white pursuit of... White saviors. Being correct. Mm-hmm. Saviorism, yeah. Um, and I think that's ingrained into our genealogy right it's like this belief oh i i understand i'll fix all this for you (laughs) it's like ah so in the community psychology fundamentals what you're supposed to do is go in into these communities talk to their prominent people that are vocal their advocacy teams um people that are already showing success and efforts and people that have relationships with the members of their community already who have their trust etc you interview them you talk about what do they value what's needed what are the patterns throughout the decades that you've lived here that have been holes in creating a healthy system for you and your children your grandparents what do we need to do how can we empower you guys to rebuild your community that was devastated by a hurricane or whatever we don't ask that question but that's the way to be successful Air quotes. <laughs> so that's, I'm going to throw out my company now. Miller Clinical Consulting. <laughs> Give me that one please, more time so I please can make call. Miller Clinical Consulting. <laughs> but it's based on that understanding of we go into a treatment center. There is a diverse problem. We can't go in and assume we know what needs to happen. Might have a scaffold of understanding hey, this is what we've seen in the past. We need to improve the clinical product, maybe structure the staff differently, beef up the staff, have different protocols for hiring, all that. But we're not on the ground there. We don't know the context. We don't, we don't know any of that. So we need to ask. And also, how effective is it if you walk into a center and say, hey, we're going to change this, this, and this today because I'm your consultant? Yeah, that you, that's not relationship no. building. That's like me you get coming lots to a client. Of resistance. Yeah, mm-hmm. but what is it, what's going to do for that? It's nothing. Resistance and here's another guy coming in thinking he knows how to fix something, and he's just getting paid by the company to and look I, busy. And I think that's I had always had a problem with um, clinical directors who would do that. Like yep. it was like a rotating cast of clinical directors, and the next one would come in and be like, "Okay, I'm making all these changes X, Y, and Z for sweeping the board." Yep. Without ever asking the staff, who are you? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What do you like? What do you want to do here? What changes do you want to see? It was, you know, that was, it was very imperialistic. 
well, when we were doing that and you were a supervisor and Carla, that's why we had those meetings because I wanted to ask you guys. Right, yeah. In contrast, saw. the relationship I had with you was much more research-oriented. Let's um, build something from the ground up. You know, it wasn't, um, you know, I, I know everything because I've been a clinical director elsewhere. I'm sweeping the table. And we're just going to do things my way. What no. system do we need to create? Right, it was for not system oriented. Our center. No, it was very dictatorial. I have the answers. You will implement the solutions. And my thing is, if we're supervisors in a treatment center, shouldn't we be providing supervision? Correct. And that therein lies the problem is that. These, or are we just like, note signers? I'm they confused. were note signers. Yes, okay. that I was think the that expectation. Would be a nice ethical <laughs> requirement that your boss cannot be your clinical supervisor. Your boss, who determines your raises and whether you're terminated or not, cannot be the person that helps you foster constantly improving clinical skills. Yeah. See, that's why they were they had um, supervisees that they would mentor when I was the director. So there was some level of separation. Mm-hmm. Right. And what was fascinating is some of our people we hired were just as resistant to supervision as clients are to therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, and so that, I have a a fear of the whole treatment model where, okay, yeah, we have a lot of group therapy and we bill for that because we have more people in a room. I understand that part. What's the psychological effect of being with clients exponentially more than staff. It's huge. I mean, I've never done it. I've never done group for 25 hours a week and nothing else. I don't think that structure works. Mm -mm. Obviously, it's going to create an us-them narrative, or I'll constantly have to be open to that possibility and do a lot of different work with my supervisor to ensure it doesn't happen. But I think naturally it's easy to get pulled into the system, like the actual group and what their thoughts are about the treatment center or whatever. I think just psychologically you're going to be drawn into becoming a client. We saw it a couple times. (laughs) Yes, we did. Yeah, we don't know who the client is and who the therapist is. And that's so sad is in supervision when someone, I think about this in my life in general, but supervision as well. If someone's going to tell me what they see and I can tell that they're approaching it from a place of concern and they're not just being dicks, even if it's hard to hear, I can acknowledge that it took courage for them to tell me that and to honor it and to at least try to swallow whatever it is. So as a supervisor, when I start to broach something, even with craft, right, I'll, I'll approach it just like it was a client that had no regula- regulation ability at all. And then I met with resistance and denial and it's, it's just sad. We're professionals. This is contingent upon providing good therapy to a client, your ability to be malleable and open and self-reflective that 
is your product and you are unwilling to do that because it's uncomfortable what yeah. are you doing here and i think that lends itself to this idea well, i'm licensed now so i don't need any more supervision yep. I've, reta- I've reached that level that bar i'm good i don't need to know anything more i need i'm done i need supervision all the time absolutely i mean it helps keep that mirror in place to be reflective i told you it would become evan's yeah. therapy <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what we'll be doing. We'll be ch- chugging two liters of Coca-Cola. <laughs> be like, this is a steam building. <laughs> but we get, we're never done growing and no. developing. So if I stop supervision, I'm assuming that I'm as good as I'm going to get ever. That's a pretty bad place to approach clients from. This is as good as it gets. Let's burn out, possibly. It's definitely arrogance and hubris. Mm-hmm. Where does that lead? But what challenges am I going to have next year and five years, ten years is going to affect my clinical skills? What new data is coming out in the field? Are you familiar with the escalator metaphor of racism? Mm-mm. It's in um, Sue Sue, they're the common authors for multiculturalism. You know yeah. I know the yeah. authors, but I, I don't oh, recall yeah, I mean, this I've particular. Used that textbook. Oh, I read. So that when I was in grad school, I read. Uh, I skimmed stuff, but I tried to. I tried very hard to retain, because I knew once I got in the field, it would be, it would be challenging because I would be busy and working. I tried really hard to retain stuff, so I dug into that multicultural book. It was huge. I'm going to butcher the metaphor, but I'm thinking about in terms of as a counselor and, and losing our own code of ethics and um, conceptual ability and biasy uh, sifting, all that. So as a, I'll say as a white male, right, I'm on this escalator. I'm walking the other way. When I'm pursuing um, a multicultural lens, when I'm pursuing... Uh, compassion, understanding for people of a different class or race, and I'm remaining curious as to what their experience has been. I'm not speaking for them. Doing all those approaches to interacting with disempowered populations, lesbian, gay, all that stuff. I'm walking against the ele- escalator, or the was it an escalator that's flat in airports? Um, like the, the moving sidewalk. Yeah. One of those things. What I'm envisioning. So I'm walking against. Right. I have to work really hard to do that. I have to work harder than if I'm just progress. walking on regular ground, because it's not my natural state of walking. If I stop pursuing the things that I listed, I start to fall back, and it pulls me back. So my biases become stronger. My my lack of reflection as to what my white privilege means in situations becomes stronger. Everything that I work against to, to combat how I've been conditioned grows again. I go all the way back to where I was because now I have my arms crossed, my ego's involved, I'm not open to feedback, etc. So I'm thinking about that metaphor in terms of counselors as well. If we don't continue to do our own work, not only through our own therapy, but um, peer supervision like we're doing or calling a friend in the field and saying, hey, this client really irritates the hell out of me. I need to figure out why. why. Yeah. Like when y'all got here today, I 
staff something. I'm like, how's this come across to you? Yeah, was it was it over the top snarky? Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, tell us what just, they they weren't listening. What the metaphor? <laughs> we'll save that for the future. Let me ponder that. <laughs> Might be too too soon. Okay. Yeah, that was this morning. Um, read us some questions. Okay. Well, this is. I was just gonna piggyback on what okay. you were saying because um, I'm going through the supervisor training to get the next license, the supervisor's license. And there are four categories that um, supervisors supervise. And the one that we had to do, like, this assessment to figure out, like, which one do you naturally of the four gravitate towards? And for me, it's professionalism. Like, I always honed in on that as, like, if if I'm given um, four areas of concern, more consistently than not, I hone in on professionalism. Is the supervisee demonstrating professionalism? And I think that's something that if we go back to this concept of gatekeeping that I would like to see is that more of our fellow counselors have experience maybe in other industries where they've had to learn professionalism because so much you can come to the table with a lot of education, but if you can't start a session on time, end a session on time, Dress yeah, appropriately, collect a copay, co-pay exactly. Insurance claims. Write accurately. a complete sentence and communicate that in email. Return Nothing else phone. matters. Return a phone call. Return a phone call, yes. I mean, just. Well, the idea is working in treatment is so chaotic and disorganized and dysfunctional. If you can't do it in a system that works more effectively, you certainly cannot do it. No. In that system. Being a self-starter, I mean, I think that's highly important to our field. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please subscribe so you're notified of new episodes. Rate and review this podcast and share it with your network. Thank you greatly for listening, and we hope we gave you some new ideas that help you develop as a counselor or perhaps incorporate into your psychotherapy practice. You can contact Evan Miller, Melissa Martin, or Eli Branscombe. Please email contact us at tellmeaboutyourmother.run.